Okay, looks like we're finally live. Sorry for the delay for anybody who is watching or waiting. Um, this is The Social Brain, episode eight. Um, I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. I run the channel Sense of Mind. And today we're going to be talking about the neuroscience of mindfulness. Um, so we're going to be talking about what is mindfulness? How does it work? And um, I guess before we get into that, I just want to, you know, uh, hand it over to my co-host here. Taylor Guthrie. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm Taylor Guthrie. I am a social neuroscientist and I run the channel The Cellular Republic. I absolutely love doing this show. We explore kind of how the brain works, uh, give us some, give you some insight into all of these processes so you can have some kind of control over your own mind and over your body. I think that's kind of the focus of this episode, especially, is, is really gaining some insight into kind of what's going on up there. So awesome. Right. And throughout this episode, if you guys have any anyone who's watching, if you have any questions or comments or anything, um, don't hesitate to throw them in the chat. We will respond to them when we get to them. Um, but so I just want to kind of instill a, a sense of why this is important for everyone. Um, so like in our last episode, we talked about something called the default mode network, which is a network of brain regions that are largely responsible for our kind of mind wandering, our ability to think about ourselves and think about the future and the past. And um, it's involved in a lot of things. But we talked a lot in that episode about how we as humans spend a lot of our time thinking about the past and the future. And while this can be really good for us, obviously you want to be able to plan for the future. You don't want to just completely live in the moment without any sense of what's going to happen. Um, and you want to have your goals and all that. Uh, that it can also, this kind of mind wandering and rumination can lead to a lot of problems, a lot of issues, including anxiety and depression um, and just general unhappiness because we're not living in the moment. Um, so I think that this episode is going to be a way of kind of countering the last episode. So um, <laughs> there is this amazing, simple research-backed method of countering the default mode network of that rumination and that mind wandering, and it is mindfulness meditation. So we're going to be talking about what mindfulness is and why it's important. Um, but just as like a personal anecdote, I know um, Taylor meditates, but and I do as well. And I know that it's been one of the biggest, most impactful things for my own mental health in the last five years. And I've been doing it for about five years. And I can say that it's it's improved my ability to focus and mainly my emotional regulation, I think. So we'll get into all that. We'll talk about how that works in the brain, but maybe I'll hand it over to you, Taylor, and we can start talking about what is mindfulness? What are we talking about? Yeah. And I think you touched on some really important things because I think one of the, one of the biggest sources of our, our, of our distress, of our suffering, of our psychological kind of distress is from the past or from the future right? We're either stuck in these things that happened to us. We're kind of dwelling on a fight that we had. We're dwelling on things that we should have done, whatever it is, 
or we're thinking about all of these things that we're afraid of in the future. I mean, when you think about anxiety, anxiety is a lot of the times being afraid of not accomplishing the things that, that we were setting out to accomplish, right? Not being able to have those relationships that we want in our lives, not being able to impress our boss or impress whoever we're trying to, to kind of be in the social circle with. Um, and those things, we have to really kind of get into this mindset that they are psychological in nature. Right? They're not being driven by any type of thing in our environment in this moment right now. right? And so it's not to say, I, I love how you, how you put it, Andrew, that uh, we're not just throwing that stuff away because that stuff is what made us kind of the dominant species on the planet is our ability to think about the future, was to think about these relationships and these things that happened in the past and maintain these incredible complex social societies. Uh, but that that great tool that we have also can kind of be a double-edged sword that can really come back to bite us if we don't really gain insight into what it is that's actually happening um, and really be able to, to be aware of where these thoughts are coming from, what kind of purpose they serve, uh, and whether they're kind of directing us in a positive direction or not. Um, and so kind of jumping into this, like what is mindfulness? Uh, something that you mentioned too, Andrew. So I, I've kind of jumped in and out of meditation. Um, and I think a lot of people listening, I mean, meditation and mindfulness is kind of in vogue right now, right? That's not how it always used to be. Uh, but it's hard to have a routine of ever, of anything uh, because life is chaotic. We get busy. Uh, but I can, like Andrew said, I can kind of attest to the fact that when I do commit, when I get back into the swing, I mean, I have a two-year-old child, I have a really busy wife and all of these things, but I know those moments that I spend time actually like reflecting, introspecting, meditating, I feel hundreds of times better uh, emotionally, physically. Uh, I have a lot of pain that I deal with. It allows me to really get into touch with all of these things. Um, and so why don't you just real quick, Andrew, let's try to kind of paint a picture of what mindfulness is, because it's a very broad kind of umbrella term. Yeah, for sure. I, and um, I just want to note uh, Bruce's question in the chat he says, I wonder if there's a Goldilocks zone of balance between mind uh, wandering and focused mind to help manage anxiety. Um, and yeah, I think exactly what Taylor was just saying we don't want to completely get rid of, of focus and planning for the future, but this like over rumination, overthinking about the future could lead to some anxiety and we'll get more into that. So I just want to note that there, but totally um, your question was, what is mindfulness? Um, so I would define mindfulness um, as many others do as a, a presence, a um, kind of focused moment-to-moment -moment awareness of the present moment and that including kind of the physical and the mental aspects of your experience and when it's stated that way it can sound very trivial like what could be easier just noticing what's happening but what you'll notice when you start uh, meditating is that it's very hard to just stay even focused on a single object even if it's just the feeling of your breath or even a, a physical object out in the world that you're looking at, um, that takes skill to develop that kind of mindfulness, that, that ability to stay present and to notice what is happening in your experience right now. And one of the things about defining mindfulness is that there's 
a lot of little variations that you'll come up if you ever look into the research or even into just the kind of meditation literature. Um, there's going to be slight differences in that in that definition, and um, but I think that most people would probably agree that it's it's something to do with a calm, open presence uh, in the of of everything that's happening in your experience. And I think something too that I hear uh, kind of tacked onto that definition a lot too is this idea of non-judgment that the awareness that we have of the present moment is one in which you you have no connection to what things to the things that are coming up in your mind right uh, and when i say no judgment i mean that's kind of this kind of broad term itself as well uh, but in the last episode we talked about the default mode network and we talked about this idea of bottom up versus top down processing Bottom-up processing is this idea that we're feeling things in the world, right? I'm, I'm touching this chair. There's pressure of my back against the chair. Uh, I can feel the temperature in this room. All of those sensory signals are building from the bottom up and are building into perceptions, right? But then we ha also have this kind of top-down influence. We have these expectations about the world, what we want to see in the future, what we're thinking about the past, these kind of things that we've learned throughout our lives, these beliefs that we have, what we like, what we don't like. All of these kind of top-down perceptions influence the way that we experience all of those bottom-up feelings, right? And it's really, I think what mindfulness is, is trying to turn all of that off, not trying to approach something, not trying to avoid something, like seeing these thoughts, seeing whatever it is you're paying attention to with just complete, they, they call it equanimity, balance, not, not liking it or disliking it, but just seeing it, just being aware that it's there. Um, and that that little bit of just like recognizing that I'm able to be an observer is really powerful because you start to notice where these things are coming from. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Um, that non-judgment is so important. Um, and yeah, I do think it's like releasing the or I guess putting the brakes on the uh, the top down processing. Um and uh, something else we should note about mindfulness is you, as we're talking about this, you can kind of tell that this is not just a practice. It's not just something that you can sit down and do, although that's, that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, actual meditation, um, sitting, often closing your eyes, like we we're talking about either paying attention to your breath or some other stimulus or your own just general experience. Um, and there's different forms of mindfulness meditation, but that's the one hand, that's the practice. And then there's also this kind of almost like a, a personality trait or a, just a, it's called dispositional mindfulness in the literature. And so some people are just more kind of naturally mindful in the way that we're talking about uh, in their day-to-day -day life. So outside of practice, in their own experience, there are you know, we're at each of us is at a different level of mindfulness about our day to day experience. So I think just keeping that in mind is important. And as we'll talk about the practice, if you do practice regularly and you keep it up, it can raise your dispositional mindfulness so that it spills out over into the rest of your life. Totally. And I think that really ties into we just got a question from from Bruce about whether mindfulness um, is kind of this absence of reacting. Um, and that's, that's exactly how I think of it, um, is that 
instead of being in this constant loop of like something happens and I need to react to that, right? Think about like actual social situations that you're in, like you get in a fight or you're, uh, you're dealing with some like angry person at the store or whatever it is. Uh, there's that moment of like needing to engage, needing to react to whatever's happening. Um, and mindfulness really is instead just like noticing where those reactions, those needs for reactions are even coming from. Um, and, and taking that moment to just pause and say like, is this necessary? Right. That's where like cognitive behavioral therapy really comes in. It's like, uh, challenging those thoughts that are coming up in the first place. Um, I, before I got into mindfulness, uh, I'm a big philosophy buff. I love philosophy. I, I didn't realize that I was doing a lot of mindfulness stuff before I, I learned a lot about it. Cause I was really into stoicism and stoicism is, is very much so Marcus Aurelius Seneca, uh, is very much about this kind of, uh, regulating your emotions, keeping control of your emotions, noticing where they're coming from and not reacting to them. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's a very good way of thinking about it, Bruce. Um, and the other thing I too, I wanted to kind of mention before we dive into some other stuff is we mentioned this mindfulness thing as being this big, big umbrella, right? There's tons of different types of meditation practice. Uh, and we'll get into some of those different styles as we kind of get through this thing. But um, I think something that comes up for a lot of people is like, which one's the best, right? right? Tai Chi versus like sitting and closing your eyes and... Uh, and really what it is, is, you need to think about it more like uh, like exercise, right? Some people do weight training. Some people do cardio. Some people do, uh, you know, uh, running on a treadmill or whatever it is. That's cardio. But uh, but the, the thing is, is that all of these different exercise practices are all beneficial for your physical health, right? Uh, but they're going to train you in a slightly different way. Right. And that's how you, you need to think about some of these meditative practices is a lot of the times people get into these things and they try this one version of it uh, and it's not for them. And then they just completely lose the practice. Uh, but really, like, try a, a couple, try different apps, try different ways of doing it and really kind of get that flavor of what it is that's, that's working for you that you're able to kind of bring into your routine, because all of these are going to give the kind of benefits that we're going to talk about throughout the episode. Yeah, that's that's really good to mention. Um, and I think uh, we'll we may be talking mostly about mindfulness as specifically in this episode, um, but we will definitely point you to some resources and references to look at these other forms of meditation in more depth. Um, but uh, I guess you know the next thing we might want to mention is just a caveat within this whole discussion, um, th there is some difficulty to studying mindfulness. Um, it's, you know, now that fMRI and other functional brain imaging methods have been around for a while, we are able to actually look into the brain of people while they're meditating and to start to get these kind of longitudinal studies. But it's been a pretty, it's a pretty extremely young research field, really. And so, there's, you know, there's people who have been meditating for 40 years, or there's people who just started meditating in the, you know, the, the experimental setting in the, the psychological lab. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of different levels of skill among practitioners. And um, one of the, the papers that we might mention today is kind of one of the first to actually break down uh, 
the differences in how mindfulness and meditation affects people's brains um, based on how much skill, how long they've been practicing for. So even that was a relatively new, um, maybe five or six years, new addition to kind of how people were looking at mindfulness in the neuroscience world. Yeah, no, and I, I think that this is a, a really important kind of point to keep in mind is that uh, when we're doing any kind of imaging work, uh, neuroimaging, putting someone in a scanner, right? These things are, it, it's its a tube. It's this big white tube that's really, really loud, uh, right? And we're putting people in there and we're saying, okay, now get into this super tranquil state, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of difficulties into understanding kind of what exactly these states are based on the limitations of the tools that we have. Uh, and the other thing I think that was really important that you brought up, Andrew, is that there are very different kind of levels of expertise. Uh, and so you have some people that have, like Andrew said, that have been practicing, have done like 10 years on retreat of silent retreats, right? Uh, those are the ones that we really want to know, like what happened to them? What happened to their brains? What's different about them after they've kind of spent their whole life in this kind of contemplative practice, right? Uh, but then you have to think about that sample size is really small. The amount of people that have gone that far isn't very big. And so when we see changes in brain structure and we see these things, uh, we have to keep in mind that we're looking at a small group of people. Oftentimes, there's a lot of cultural influence there, right? These people belong to a specific culture, uh, oftentimes a specific religion. They have specific diets. They have a specific lifestyle. And so a lot of times it's hard to really pinpoint, is this just mindfulness that's doing this? Is it just this? Um, and something I think that is important to, to point out is that like mindfulness has become very popular. Uh, and this has been since like the early nineties up. So, I mean, in America, uh, the idea of divorcing this kind of meditation and mindfulness from a lot of these cultural aspects of kind of where these things came from, um, has been very new and it's been really difficult to, to kind of parse that up. But there's also now, I think like a thousand articles a year. That are being released on mindfulness so there's a ton of, of people that are really trying to figure out kind of where the nuance is uh what's happening to new practitioners uh of like 10 to 40 minutes a day uh and we'll kind of touch on some of that stuff because as you do more research as you kind of keep like kind of picking away at this you start to see similarities across studies and you start to see things that look robust enough to really be able to talk about and say okay this looks like this might be something profound. And when you look across, like it, it is very, very healthy to meditate, <laughs> to be mindful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. And um, we kind of already mentioned this, but just, you know, keep in mind, there are these other forms of meditation and prayer. And um, like, uh, if, if you want to know more about Prayer, for example, um, I did do an interview with the neuroscientist Andrew Newberg on my channel, and uh, we can link to that here. Um, but yeah, we probably won't be talking about um, yoga or or any anything other than meditation. Um, but anyway, maybe we should we should jump into some of these robust findings that you were mentioning. Um, so I guess a big question is. Like, how do we know that mindfulness is actually different from just our regular state of mind? Like we were talking about earlier, it kind of sounds a little bit fluffy when you're like, oh, it's this present moment awareness of what's happening. How is that different in the brain 
compared to our regular state of mind. Uh, yeah, and we're going to be talking, I think, a lot about default mode. That's why we we had this whole episode. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, go back and watch our, our uh, episode on the default mode network. Because really, we have this network of regions, and it's the network that is expanded in humans. It's really what gave us a lot of advantage in kind of the animal kingdom was our ability to plan was our ability to form these intense social, complex social societies. Uh, and that gave us this, this ability to, to think about the future and to think really far into the past and to create these narrative identities and to develop meaning and goals and plans. Uh, but you have to think too that a lot of that was developed uh, and evolved in a situation where there wasn't a lot of choice, right? You were a hunter-gatherer. Like your goal was to go out and find food. And so it was thinking about those. Uh, we live in a really complex society now where there's just like so many different things, so many competing needs that we have going on in our head uh, <clears throat> that gets the default mode network just firing like crazy. And what Andrew was getting at was that like, why is, how is mindfulness kind of considered this, this distinct brain state um, is that we see across these functional neuroimaging studies where we're putting people in MRIs, we're looking at what their brain activity is doing, uh, that there is a significant decrease in default mode activity, that we're shutting down this like thinking about the future and thinking about the past. Um, and we're instead, we're kind of taking control of our attention. Um, we're going to do our next episode is going to be all about attention on um, what it is, how we can kind of influence it and things like that. But uh, there are these other networks that are kind of in opposition to the default mode network. And they're the ones that are like, what's going on right now? And you're, you can think of attention as kind of the spotlight, right? And what I like to think about when I'm thinking about mindfulness is actually taking control of the spotlight, right? It's like, I'm now pointing it where I want to point it, right? I'm pointing it at my breath. I'm pointing it at some external object in my environment, right? Uh, and we see there's there's a portion of the brain, it's called the, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So if you put your, your hand kind of on your head right here, you're gonna be touching kind of your, <laughs> your left uh, dorsolateral means on the outside and kind of up at the top. Exactly, nice. <laughs> So if you're listening, uh, Andrew just pointed at a brain. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that region tends to be really involved in kind of this executive control of, of attention, um, of pulling us away from this kind of mind wandering, this uh, just like thoughts, just getting, getting lost in these thoughts about the future and the past and bringing us to a specific point right now. Um, and we see that like people that practice mindfulness, that they tend to have a lot more activity in that region of their brain, um, even after they're, they're done meditating. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, so that seems to be like the main, one of the main biggest findings is this kind of, sh uh, shutting down of the DMN, but it, it doesn't fully shut down. It reduces its activity and, a, and like uh, Taylor was saying, kind of turns on this uh, left DLPFC, but also it's kind of specific regions of that default mode network that are turning off. And we don't want to get lost in all the <laughs> nomenclature here, but um, but we've talked before about the dorsomedial PFC and um, Taylor's really an expert on this brain region, but it, it has to do with our sense of self. And so whenever we're thinking about ourselves in kind of an autobiographical sense or like just thinking about our life story and what happened to us 
that region becomes active. Um, and Taylor will correct me wherever I'm wrong here, but <laughs> that and um, that tends to turn down its activity when we're in this uh, my, practicing mindfulness. Um, but also regions like the insular cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex tend to turn up their activity. And that's interesting because these are brain regions involved in interoception and emotional regulation. And I have a video on interoception. And um, but the, the basic thing is that it's it's this sensation sensations coming from your body. It's basically the perception of what's happening inside your body. Some people say it's at the skin and below. Um, and that is largely happening in the insula. And then this anterior cingulate cortex, don't worry about these names. Again, um, these are areas at kind of near the front of the brain, but deeper in um, from the cortex. Regardless, uh, they're involved in emotional regulation and interoception. And so as what we often see with mindfulness is that people's these areas of the brain turn up their activity. And so that's indicating that maybe they're, that we, we begin to engage in interoception. And that may have to do with the specific form of, of meditation that you're doing. So if you're focusing on your breath or, or your body in particular, then obviously you're going to be turning up the activity of these regions. But it's just, I think the most interesting thing is turning down the activity of that self-narrative um, region, that that DMPFC, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. Again, don't have to remember these these names of these no. brain regions. No, and, and you're you're getting at something that's uh, kind of profound across all of the, the the practices that have been doing this for thousands of years. There's kind of this idea of of losing the self, right? Um, and something that I brought up at the very beginning was this idea of non-judgment that we're, when you're in one of these mindful states, that what you're trying to do is you're trying to take control of that attention spotlight. Uh, and like Bruce just, uh, asked a question about martial arts, uh, be mindful state, meditation, dancing, writing, uh, they all seem to be really similar. And that's because all of them are kind of taking advantage of this fact that you're in the moment with that attention, um, and that you're not kind of lost in thinking about what to do next or all of these things. But the sense of self, that kind of judgment, when we think about ourselves, there's this, this region that he was just talking about kind of in the midline of your frontal cortex that every time you think about anything related to yourself, what you did yesterday, what you're doing tomorrow, what things you own versus what things you don't own, uh, what things you like versus what things you don't like, there's this area that seems to keep track of all of the things that are important and meaningful to us in our lives, meaningful for our goals and our plans and all of these things. And that's really where a lot of the judgment comes from, right? Because we're thinking about what's good for us. We're thinking about what's bad for us. We're thinking about what we should do next or what we should have done before. Um, and really, when you're in these mindful states, you're trying to suppress a lot of that kind of meanness of <laughs> like like trying to to grasp on trying to be the thoughts that you that you are in your mind and get lost in these things um and it's it's really cool that like for thousands of years they've been talking about this kind of loss of the sense of self and now kind of 2022 we have all this neuroimaging research from social cognition right not from mindfulness research like the the research that i do is on the self is on social cognition and we know that these regions are involved in self-referential processing. That's kind of the fancy way of talking about it. Anything related, cognition related to the self. 
And so it's just fascinating to me that these, these two researches were done kind of separate from one another, but we see this social cognition research that identified, I mean, this is a really, really robust finding. You put one person in the scanner and you tell them to think about themselves, that medial portion of your prefrontal cortex will light up every single time. And for then mindfulness to be something that shuts that down and for it to be something phenomenal logically, right? Like people talk about losing their sense of self. Like that's, I think that's profound to me. And you can kind of, you can see that like, there's a link there that makes sense biologically now that we have these networks in our brain that are really responsible for keeping track of all of these things kind of external to us that, that are important. The other things that Andrew mentioned uh, that I kind of want to put into context too, these other regions, the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex uh, are part of what's considered kind of the salience network. Uh, and by salience, I mean, they're trying to find things that are important, uh, usually interoceptively, right? So things that are going on in your body uh, that are signaling something important is happening, right? So like if your heart is beating really fast, that probably means that there's something going on that you need to be paying attention to, right? Uh, and what we see in these mindfulness studies is that those regions tend to like ramp up right? That you tend to really be kind of ramping up this insular activity, which is kind of representing kind of the state of the body along with the, the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, and contextualizing it of saying, okay, the heart's beating really fast. Like, what does that mean? What is the, what does our environment look like? Is it something that we should be scared of? Is it something we should be excited about? Um, and it's tuning into those processes, being mindful of kind of where is this stuff coming from? What are these feelings that I'm feeling? And kind of reserving the judgment, reserving the like, why is this important selfness? Um, it's kind of a long-winded way of answering that, but <laughs> no, it's so important. It's it's yeah, one of the findings um, that I, I have to find the reference, but um, <laughs> just related to this is that even um, when like while meditating. Um, experienced mindfulness practitioners tend to show that lower DMPFC activity that, that indi indicating, you know, that they're not, they're not doing that narrative self-processing at, at the same level as um, novice meditators, people who have only just started meditating. So that's a, that's something to keep in mind too, that these changes kind of happen over time, just like when you're exercising in the gym, like Taylor's talking about, you are going to build muscle, but it's going to happen slowly over time, over many sessions of being in the gym. And that's the same with the brain. You know, uh, we talked about neuroplasticity a little bit here before and how your brain, your, the neurons, the cells in your brain actually change their connections and strengthen them and uh, weaken others over time. Um, but an, an interesting finding that uh, like, surprised me was that some of these regions we're talking about actually show increased um, cortical thickness, increased volume of these regions. So they're actually getting bigger, um, likely due to um, increases in the, we won't go into the, all the, the, the cellular stuff, but it's um, definitely an interesting fact that, that some of these regions we've been mentioning, like the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex tends to thicken, tends to get bigger with mindfulness practice. And um, just this is kind of uh, tangential, but 
that's also a pattern that's seen with people who um, are like lower their pain sensitivity over time that uh, the ACC along with some other regions get bigger. And um, one way you can interpret that is that these regions have more processing power, more ability to kind of um, tamp down or just, just uh, um, process that information in a way that doesn't um, kind of give it that emotional reaction that kind of keeps that emotional response at bay and you're able to just perceive the, the raw sensations. That's a little bit yeah. of speculation. But. No, and I, I think that something really important to keep in mind uh, is that, uh, so Andrew in our last episode put on our thumbnail that the default mode is kind of the brain storyteller, right? Uh, we did a whole uh, thing on emotion uh, and that a lot of the, the current theories of, of emotion are all about kind of, uh, we have these bodily sensations that are coming up, but then we have this extra kind of region that then tries to create a story about what those are. And that's what emotions tend to be, is that we have these these kind of bodily sensations, and then we're kind of making these appraisals of whether they're good, whether they're bad, what they mean in the context. Uh, and really what, what we're trying to, to get at with a lot of this stuff is you have all of these sensations that are coming up. You have all of these, these bodily things that are going on. Um, and there's regions in our brain, like Andrew was just mentioning, that are solely for understanding what those are, what they're signaling, right? Um, and I think what happens, especially in modern society, is that we tend to just like think that we know and we tell these stories about what they are uh, without actually listening to them without listening to our body, without tuning into our body and actually trying to figure out what it is that we need to give it, right? Uh, the whole like title of my YouTube channel, The Cellular Republic, is all about how like my perspective of the mind is that the mind is kind of a governing agent. It's it, responsible for millions and millions of living things, living cells that all need certain things, right? They need resources. They need to release tension here and there. They need blood flow. They need all of these things. Um, and the only way that they can signal to this governing entity, which is the brain up in our head, is through these bodily sensations, right? It's through these signaling pathways that turn into emotions, that turn into these things. Uh, and I think that really what a lot of mindfulness is, is kind of getting better at that governing principle, is like really, instead of kind of being up in this ivory tower and just making stories about what you think is going on out in the world, you're actually like coming down and you're spending time with the people. You're like paying attention to your body. You're going to that region of your toe or your back that hurts and you're being with it. You're listening to it, right? And there's this really interesting study that like, especially on pain research, um, that when you put really experienced meditators, mindfulness kind of people into a scanner and you hurt them, you shock them, uh, there's this really interesting thing that happens compared to controls is that controls a lot of the times what's happening is uh, they're trying to use these storytelling regions of their brain to make sense of the pain, to run away from the pain. To, uh, and you'd think that with these meditators that somehow like, I mean, you kind of think about it contemplatively, like they figured out how to turn pain off or something like that. It's really the exact opposite. What happens in their brain is that the regions that are processing the pain, the sensory regions, are actually more active. They're just with it in a non-judgmental way. They're feeling those, those, those pains. They're with that pain. 
instead of creating a story about whether they like it or whether they don't like it, whether they're running away from it, right? Um, and this is really powerful, especially if you're someone that that suffers from from chronic pain. I mean, I am. I have I had a snowboard crash ten years ago. I have really chronic back pain all the time, uh, and I fall into this situation so much of the time where I just talk about how much it sucks, right? I hate this. It's so bad. I, I'm like running away from it. I'm creating these stories about how bad it is. But when I spend those times actually being mindful and just paying attention to the pain, being with the pain, not judging it, not doing anything about it, but just being with it, I feel better. It's not like the pain went away, but I've accepted it. And I've realized that like my body is actually trying to tell me something. Um, and I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but it's, it's very much kind of the way that I'm, I'm starting to conceptualize a lot of this mindfulness stuff, uh, is really like, how do you allocate your attention? Where do you allocate your attention? What do you need to pay attention to? We're these really complex organisms that, that require a lot of maintenance. Uh, Andrew did this fascinating interview with, uh, with a guy that wrote a book. He was a mathematician, but he wrote a book about how our systems break down over time. Right. And I think a lot of what that breaking down is, is that you have like like when Rome fell. Right. You had the sewers started to go. The police started to go. All of these things started to go. If we had paid attention to any one of those in the moment, we could have made those better. And what we're seeing with mindfulness kind of uh, research in general is that they are protecting their brain from thinning from like the, these regions that, that get bigger are regions that actually thin and kind of result in Alzheimer's happening earlier in old age. Uh, they have incredible stress reduction, all of these things, like they're able to govern their bodies and govern their healths in a way that other people can't. And I think that it gives us a sense of like power and responsibility when we understand that. Uh, yeah, that's such a great point. I think um, where you touched on, um, just that that some of these brain regions are just really listening really closely to what's happening in the body. Um, I wanted to relate that back to um, a question in the chat from Bruce. Um, is the meanness similar to a low level fight or flight engagement? Like the engine is turned on, but only in idle. Uh, he's, trying, so he's trying to look at it from different perspectives. I think that's there's something to that. Um, and one thing I wanted to add in about when we're talking about these storytelling regions and that this is kind of a source of stress, well, it's not, it's not just the stories. It's not just that we're thinking about ourselves. It's that these thoughts about ourselves often drive our stress response, often like kick our amygdala into gear. And that's another finding um, from this research that people who practice mindfulness for a long time tend to show lower amygdala activity, um, I think in a resting state, but definitely while meditating and that may be coming from these, these top down influences of the, the prefrontal cortex kind of attenuating the activity of the amygdala, but also some of what uh, Taylor was just talking about where we're really paying close attention to these bottom up raw sensations and not kind of allowing them to reach those storytelling regions, which would then trigger the amygdala or kind of cutting it off at its source or close to the source. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's really great points there. Um, and I think there's some, there's some benefits that, uh, th there's some changes to the brain that may uh, signal some benefits that are not often talked about or maybe just haven't had enough attention or I haven't seen the right <laughs> studies, but there's, there are these findings about um, 
uh, increased white matter integrity. So these these tracks in the brain, these fiber tracks that are kind of the information superhighways of the brain, they they connect some of these regions that we've been talking about. They um, they're like the wires, the or the you know the big um, like clumps of what am I saying? Uh, bundles <laughs> of wire <laughs> uh, that go across the brain and to and connect different regions. And one really interesting thing is that um, both the fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain, uh, the corpus callosum, and also the fibers that connect the um, kind of subcortical regions to, or sorry, the brainstem to the cortex, these increase their integrity with uh, more mindfulness practice. And uh, I have to look at how robust that finding is, but there's definitely this finding that um, people who practice mindfulness tend to show higher connectivity um, in their brains. And so that I don't know exactly what that correlates to with behavior or moment to moment experience, but there's, there's something to the fact that mindfulness is probably increasing the, the efficiency of, of processing in the brain to some extent. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen stuff about fluid intelligence, uh, and that's mm. kind of the ability to integrate information over time. Um, uh, not only is sustained long into later life if you're meditating, but um, also they've shown can get better uh, in certain extents. Uh, and we plan on doing a whole set about intelligence in the future. Uh, something though that that you mentioned, it kind of goes back to, to Bruce's question too, is this idea of emotions being fleeting. Right, a lot of the stuff that kicks our our stress stuff into gear uh, is actually really kind of small lived, short lived, right? So anger, uh, any type of like frustration, all of these kind of things that that really kind of kick us into a stressful thing. If you really pay attention to them, they just go away. What keeps them going is the storytelling, right? Is I'm angry because. And then all of a sudden now you're in this like loop of like, oh, well, I'm, I, I should be angry because they did this and I did this. And, and then all of a sudden now you're just spiraling and the whole thing is getting out of control and it's turning that, that really short-lived emotion of anger into this incredible narrative that's just producing so much stress and so much anxiety. Um, and I mean, that's just one with anger, but you can think about that with all kinds of kind of social emotions, with embarrassment, with disgust, with uh, kind of social anxieties in general, is that oftentimes those feelings that we have in the moment get turned up as soon as that storytelling kind of stuff comes online of trying to understand what those things are and why I should be or why I shouldn't be feeling those. Um, and I think something that's really important to mention is that uh, this is not, it doesn't have to be this thing where you're sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed, right? Uh, there's a lot of people that might not do that just because of social norms, right? I don't want to look weird, like sitting there and meditating. Like I'm not a meditator. I'm not, you know, I, uh, what, but really what, what we're talking about is something a lot more profound than that. It's, it's an examination of your own experience, right? It's instead of just sitting there and, and meditating, which can be really beneficial because it can train these things. You can develop a much better focus, uh, the ability to kind of really pay attention to where these things are coming from. But in that moment, in those stressful moments are the ones where you really want to catch those, right? And before you get lost in that train thought, 
I mean, try right now if you're listening. Uh, I mean, not right now because we're live, but if you're listening mm-hmm. to this later, uh, hit the pause button and really try to sit and just take 10 deep breaths without telling a story to yourself. It's not yeah. easy. Our mind is this chaotic mess of, of uh, needs and wants and desires and all of these things. And we're constantly trying to tell stories about all of that. And it's it's really kind of trying to, to refocus on the present moment. That is what all of this is about. Yeah. And, and um, that's a really good idea for people to try doing a... a quick breath meditation, just focusing on the sensations of your breath. Um, But something I definitely wanted to mention in this episode at some point was um, I recently watched um, Andrew Huberman, the Huberman Lab podcast. He had an episode about meditation, which I highly recommend. And I think it's linked in the description here. Um, Really, really good stuff. But one of the things that really stuck with me was that people can overtrain their interoception, that it's possible yeah. to meditate in kind of the way that we're talking about here, focusing on your breath or the sensations coming from your body, and to kind of do that to almost a, a pathological extreme, where then in regular life, you are sort of hyper-focused on what's happening in your body. And I have to admit, I think that happened to me. I I almost, I did basically exclusively uh, interoceptive um, types of meditation for the last five years. And while I think it has been extremely beneficial, I do think I may have developed some anxiety based on that, based on kind of always being aware of any slight shift in my system. Um, so I've been recently trying what Huberman calls these exteroceptive meditations. So meaning focusing on, um, perhaps uh, some visual stimulus or a something that you're listening to, just things outside of your body to get to shift your brain activity from that heightened insula ACC activity to these more um, perceptual regions. And I, I found that really helpful. So I will say if, if you're the type of person who kind of tends to be thinking about your body, kind of feeling that getting distracted by your anxiety or bodily sensations, try doing some of these more extraceptive meditations. And one I'd recommend when I first started meditating, I did this where I just literally, it sounds crazy, but just drew a dot on the wall about a few feet from my face. And I just stared at that dot for 10 minutes. And now I'd recommend like looking outside at an object if you can, um, uh, whatever is comfortable for you, but that's just a very simple way. And actually, I think it's easier than focusing on the breath. I think for some reason, our, our visual uh, attention is a little bit easier to control than that interoception. But anyway, I just want to, men- to mention that. I mean, I think we're we're very dominated by exteroception. Our yeah. vision takes up a lot of cortical real estate. Um but something that I think is, is really important when you kind of think about doing some of these, staring at a dot on the wall, uh, what can be really frustrating for a lot of people, and it was frustrating for me, especially before I, I was really able to conceptualize a lot of this stuff, um, was getting on yourself for not being able to focus, right? Of like, <laughs> oh, I can't just stare at this dot, right? Uh, but what they've actually found, there's this really cool study. They actually mentioned it in the in that Huberman podcast that, that Andrew was talking about. Um, there's a study that was done in Japan 
where they looked at uh, these advanced practicers versus controls, uh, and they had them listen to a series of tones, and you have the controls eventually would just like tone out and start mind wandering and like forget what they were doing or whatever. Uh, but the people that were really good at it, the the mindfulness kind of practitioners, uh, it wasn't that they had really good sustained attention, that they were able to just just pay attention to that tone for really long periods of time, because that's what we we get on ourselves about. It's like, ah, oh, God, I just failed again. I'm lost in thought again. Uh, but what it is, what is really special about people that practice mindfulness is not a, a sustained attention, but the ability to refocus. Right. And when you get into a lot of these meditative practices, there's a lot of really good apps, headspace, waking up. Uh, but you are trained to recognize when you're wandering. Right. OK, boom. I just got lost in that thought. And there's so many times you'll be doing a meditation where you'll even forget that you're meditating. And all of a sudden you're just like off in the future or you're off in the past or whatever. Uh, but then you're able to start again. Right. You're able to in that moment like, oh. I'm aware. I'm aware that I'm lost in thought. I'm aware that these thoughts are just coming from somewhere. I'm not creating these thoughts. I'm getting lost in these thoughts. I'm identifying with these thoughts. I'm, I'm wondering whether I like them or dislike them. But really what the practice is, is refocusing, is coming back to whatever you were, you were doing. And that's what really gives you, I think, a lot of the, the benefits that we see of kind of emotional regulation and stress reduction, all of these kind of things is because you're able to kind of step off the ledge be able to come back from the ledge yeah that that's such a good point it's it's not that you know you're just paying attention to that single dot for the whole 10 minutes it's <laughs> maybe not even the majority of that time but the important thing is every time you notice that you're you're not looking at it you come back which is why it's helpful to have a guided meditation because it it just forces you to come back to that um, the other thing I just wanted to mention is we've been talking a lot about focus and attention throughout this. And I do think that's like the bulk of, of the benefits. But if you listen to someone like Sam Harris, um, neuroscientist and meditation teacher has the, the waking up app. Um, he will talk more about a, a kind of larger, um, more like meta level benefit of it being this thing that we mentioned earlier, kind of not experiencing that narrative self-talk. And, and he even goes so far as to say, seeing the illusion of the self. So like realizing that you are not actually all those stories in your head. It's just what's happening now. And so I kind of think that as people get into the, the you know, 10 years of meditating longer and longer and longer, um, as they get more and more experienced, they may not even be focusing on any, any particular stimulus, but just simply on everything that's happening. So it's kind of, it's like less of a really dialed in focus and more of just this widespread attention. I like, it's hard to even, this is where the, the language kind of starts to break down for me at least. And, and I think, uh, I mean, you're touching on something that I've, I've come across a lot. Um, and when you listen to some of these uh, kind of teachers, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, Joe Goldstein, all of these people, they talk about uh, 
there's kind of this focused attention that we've been talking a lot about of like really honing into your breath or focusing on this external thing on this dot on the wall or whatever it is. Uh, but there's another type of mindfulness that's really kind of what they call like an open awareness or an open monitoring um, where you don't have this really narrow focused attention. And instead, you're just kind of letting things come as they are. Um, and a lot of these teachers, they actually talk about it, that being something that um, is not something you start with. Uh, you want to start with kind of this focus attention, this ability to kind of refocus and come back, because if you're in this open awareness, it's really easy to get lost. Uh, because what you're trying to do in those moments is kind of to see thoughts themselves as these, these things that you can look at, right? Um, and I think that's one of the most fascinating things to me. Uh, if you look at like a lot of the intro psych courses, they kind of paint Sigmund Freud as this, this kook that was just all about these sexual things or whatever. <laughs> but uh, I think it's really important to note that like he came across something that's really profound. Uh, the idea of the unconscious. Uh, I mean, that was something that was like not even kind of a thing before 100 years ago, but is now something that we very much see as being like a huge piece of the puzzle. Like there is so much that we are not aware of. Right. And that consciousness is this thing that is kind of like the, the highlights of the game. Right. It's the, the headline news. Right. Uh, and it's all of these things that I mean, I think of the brain as kind of this this governing entity that when you think of who's at the top of a governing entity, they're usually the ones that have the, the most pertinent information, right? The information that's been consolidated and packaged to say like, this is important, this is not important. Um, and when you really kind of take this moment of just kind of awareness, you start to see like what your body and your brain are giving to you as like, this is important, this is important. Like uh, it's not stuff that you're creating, it's stuff that you are managing. To a certain extent mm. like you're you're then in a position where you have to decide what to do with that information but there's so much that's happening unconsciously that's happening under the hood that you're getting kind of this headline news of um and it's i think that open awareness is really kind of taking a step back and not getting lost in any of it but just really kind of paying attention to what it is that's being brought to awareness yeah that's uh, well said i feel like the the basic maybe the, the key benefit of at least kind of the early stages of meditating and mindfulness is that ability to separate, um, you know, what's what you're seeing, what you're sensing from um, how you react to it. And it's kind of, it's interesting as you mentioned stoicism earlier and, you know, in my mind, obviously this is a simplification, but stoicism seems to be this kind of just non-reactivity to um, emotions. Like you, you just, I, I can't control what happens, but I can control how I react to it. And it's like mindfulness can, I think, be conflated with that, but it's a little bit different. It's more like I am going to feel this fully, but I'm not going to let it kind of dictate my behavior. So it's, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a very uh, subtle difference there, but but um, yeah, I think it does add that step in between the stimulus and the, the response, I guess. <laughs> no, and I, I think that uh, when you really get into a lot of the stoicism, it's, it's very much like not an absence of emotion. Um, it's like these people still felt joy. They still felt mm -hmm. excitement and all of these things. But, um, but it very much was this kind of absence of reaction. It was that uh, we can't control what these things do. 
Uh, we have this uh, question from, from Bruce. Martial arts teach constantly refocusing attention between self and surroundings, depending on the speed of movement. Is there a difference between these slow and fast methods or benefit from? So I think this is something we're definitely going to get into uh, in the next episode, because uh, when we think about attention, we have to think about it in terms of space and time. Right. Our body is uh, is bringing in our, our mind is bringing in information at very different speeds. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of mindfulness type stuff that is kind of a meditation in motion. There's something I practice called Siam Jasani that's kind of Tai Chi-esque uh, that is very much like that, where there's more of a speed to it. But you have to realize that a lot of this, this governing ability that our mind has has to operate on very different timescales. Some of them are in the, the span of years when we're thinking about the past or the future. Some of them are dealing with things that are happening right now that are happening really fast. Uh, some of these things require really focused attention, whereas some of them require kind of this broad, open attention. Uh, but I think that really what kind of ties the ribbon around all of this uh, is the ability to bring that spotlight to where you need it in any given moment, whether it is in a, in a fast motion or whether it is in this really kind of slowed control motion. Uh, but it's the ability to really kind of take control of that spotlight and to, to point it where you want it to point instead of just getting lost in all of these thoughts and emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are uh, walking mindfulness meditations. And so, yeah, like with all this, you know, this is a good point to just say, um, if, if you are interested in this stuff, try to find a way that works for you to actually do these practices. And there is a ton of resources out there. I guess we could, we could mention some of them now. We're getting really close on our time, but um but yeah, it's it's important to choose a practice that actually works for you and that is, you know, um, attending to what you actually need or what you want from the practice. Um, so I would just, as a, a couple recommendations, um, we mentioned the Waking Up app. That's my favorite. I've been using that for two or three years now. And um, that's uh, that's made by Sam Harris. And then, yeah, as Taylor said, Headspace is another really popular one. Um, books. There's also a book by Sam Harris called Waking Up, which is um, <laughs> my favorite book on the topic. But there's a lot of stuff out there. I don't know, if, Taylor, if you have any others. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I recently came across the Waking Up app. I love it. I know it's behind a paywall, but um, they also work with people that uh, that are not financially. Because so if you send them an email, a lot of the times they can kind of work with you on pricing and things like that. But it's really nice having an app that can give you kind of alerts and remind you. Uh, there's a lot of like, uh, especially, I mean, there's another one, Headspace, I think you might have mentioned, but uh, there's a lot of information that they give you too about kind of what these meditations might be useful for, for different types of situations that you might be going through. Uh, there's another book called Altered Traits, uh, which is Dan Goleman and uh, Richie Davidson, uh, which they are kind of uh, some of the, the founders of a lot of this. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, was one of the big ones that started a lot of the, the medical side of mindfulness, uh, these stress reduction programs and everything. Um, wherever you go, here here you are, I think is the, the title of it. Um, but yeah, really good stuff. And I, like Andrew was saying, like, this is, this is a baby step kind of thing. And I think what a lot of people end up doing wrong is they try to just like jump like head first into this and try to like just implement this entire new routine. And what 
happens is that life happens, right? And every time life gets difficult or life gets chaotic, those are the first things to go. And so what you really need is you need a slow process of just like building this in one step at a time. Um, and it's not something you want to implement when you're angry. That's not when you practice, <laughs> right? That's not when you're trying to get good at it. That's what happens. You end up having a trait of mindfulness if you practice it long enough that when you are angry, then in that moment, you're like, oh, okay, I'm angry. I know where this is coming from, right? Um, and so it's taking those kind of moments in kind of those peaceful commutes or whatever, whatever time in your busy schedule you can devote to it to just practice one little bit at a time because every little bit of discomfort is a chance for plasticity, right? That, that discomfort with yourself of like, oh, I can't, I can't focus. Try again, refocus. That discomfort is your brain changing and you need to yeah. lean into that. Yeah, that's great. That, that's great. And like, just, um, I think watching the news or reading the news is like really bad for you unless you do it in really <laughs> limited doses. So that's my advice. If you have a really busy schedule and you want to fit in some mindfulness or meditation, just, you know, take 10 minutes of, if you were going to watch the news or read a newspaper, just, um, yeah, become less informed and more mindful. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm kidding, but not, not really. Um, all right. Well, uh, yeah, this, this has been super interesting as always, like really fun talking with you, Taylor. And thank you everyone. Thank you, Bruce, for all your comments. Um, yeah. keep them coming, you know, throw comments about, uh, about mindfulness or about stuff you want us to cover in future episodes. I think our next episode is going to be on attention. So touching on a lot of the, or, you know, expanding on a lot of the stuff that we touched on in this episode. Um, but yeah, give us recommendations, let us know. Um, yeah, we want to hear from you guys. Awesome. And yeah, make sure to uh, like and subscribe on whatever you're, uh, leave us a review if you're listening to it on a podcast. Um, so Andrew runs the YouTube channel Sense of Mind. Check it out. Subscribe. He's got some great videos on there. Um, I run the the YouTube channel The Cellular Republic. I got a ton of uh, college level lecture courses and some pop sci videos. Uh, so check it out. And there, we're developing some ways that you can support us if you want to help us kind of keep this going. Uh, my wife runs uh, an online kind of gift shop for. Uh, she has like a lot of uh, gifts for kind of therapy type stuff, but also kind of Cogneuro and data science type stuff. So uh, it'll be in the descriptions of the video on, on my page. So awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good rest of your week, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll see you next year. <laughs> yeah, next. That's right. Happy New Year. <laughs>